Continuing on with our I Am series, you can turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be studying I Am the Bread of Life this morning. John chapter 6 is where we'll be. Now, around our house, I do some of the grocery shopping. I don't do all of the grocery shopping, but I, I, do, uh, I do some. And when I go to the store, I usually pick Kroger because Kroger is close to our house. Uh, and I've learned that, I guess it's part of their, their customer service, that every time I'm checking out, the checker asks me the same question, which is, did you find everything you need? <laughs> did you find everything you need? On the surface, right, in this context of shopping for groceries, they mean, did you get all the groceries you want, right? But I always have to look at a deeper level, right? So I stop and I think, did I find everything I need at Kroger? And I say to myself, you know, I don't even go to Kroger to meet all of my needs. I don't expect that Kroger can meet all of my needs. But of course, they can meet a significant need. I need food, right? It's one of my basic needs. I need food. I need shelter. I need clothing. I maybe need transportation. These are needs. And around my house, this is kind of a, an ongoing discussion because my kids will come up and they'll say, dad, I need fill in the blank, right? Or dad, I need, we need something, whatever. And I always say, really, do we, do we really, do you, we really need that? Do you need that? Is that a need or is that a want? At which time, right, they roll their eyes, and that's their job to roll their eyes. And my job is to kind of repeat the same lessons over and over again because I'm a dad, right? So do you really need it or do you just want it? Well, we need food. It is one of our basic needs. And if we're honest with ourselves, we think about that need quite a bit, don't we? Anybody ever read Five Languages of Love? Great book. It's a really great book, right? Five Languages. Um, Physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and gifts, right? Yeah, first service, I forgot quality time, which happens to be my wife's number one. (laughs) Okay, right? So I remembered it this time. I have a sixth love language, and it is a full fridge, right? That is number six for me. So when I walk in the house and I open the refrigerator door and it's stocked with stuff I like, I've got options, I really, literally, I feel loved, I feel loved. Or I open the pantry and I've got, it's full and I have choices. I go, love, my wife loves me. Full fridge, full pantry. I feel love. I, you know, I don't know where this came from, but a few years ago, I just I started having this fear of starvation. Right? I'm just going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hungry. I'm going to be hungry. And so if you walk in my office, you begin looking around my office, there's literally, there's a drawer in my office that is filled with food. In my briefcase, I always have food. I always have a bar, like a cliff bar or something. If I travel, I always have food with me when I travel. I assume I'm not going to get fed or I'm not going to get fed enough or I'm not going to be able to go to a restaurant or I won't be able to get there in time and get on the plane. So I always have food. I think about it a lot because I burn through food really quickly. And if I don't eat, I just, I crash and I bonk or I get hangry. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, right? Hunger produces produces anger. I'm ha- I get hangry. In fact, you know, this is actually a, a well-documented truth. Well-fed couples have better marriages. Right? There was a study that was done, no kidding, recently. It was reported in Time magazine, and this is what they reported. They said this. Research has shown that compared to well-fed couples, glucose-deprived people 
tend to stick more pins into voodoo dolls meant to represent their spouses. Okay? So this is the study, right? They've got you know, one group that they've just fed well and another group that's really hungry and they hand them each a voodoo dolls, right, kind of thing. And they ask them provocative questions about their spouse. And if they're glucose deprived, they're hungry, they go, uh, right? So the key to a good marriage is eat, right? That's it. Don't get hungry. We all are hungry. We all experience hunger. Why? Have you ever wondered about that? Why, why did God make us this way that every day, multiple times throughout the day, for our entire lives, we're going to experience hunger? Why did he make us like that? Why didn't he make us like the trees? Right? We just kind of walk through life and we absorb out of the atmosphere everything that we need or our feet touch the ground and we get the nutrients. Right? So we don't, we don't have to feel hunger. We just, we're constantly nourished by the atmosphere around us. Photosynthesis humans. Why why didn't God make us like that? God made us intentionally so that we would experience hunger. When we're hungry, we remember God made us this way. God knows what we need and God alone can provide for our needs. And so every time we eat a meal, we give thanks. God has provided. We also remember that God made us hungry not just for food, but for many things, and that those hungers are given by God as a gift to drive us to him, to remind us that what we really need and what we really want most in life is not simply to have our bellies filled, but we want God. That's why God gives us hunger, and God uses hunger, physical hunger, to drive us to him for life. In fact, John chapter 6 is a really beautiful and profoundly theological illustration of this principle. John chapter 6 Verse 1, I want us to read together. It says this. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? The people who were following Jesus were hungry. They're in a small town. There's no Kroger. (laughs) They've traveled from all over, little villages surrounding to be with Jesus, and they have not packed enough food, and they're hungry. What are they hungry for? Well, obviously, they're, they're hungry for food, but Jesus knows they're hungry for so much more, right? They're, they're really uh, hungry for him, but they don't know that yet. Chapter 6, verse 5, uh, 6, let's keep reading. It says, This he was saying to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Philip says, Jesus, what are you talking about? We could take two-thirds of an annual salary, and we could buy mass quantities of bread, but even then everyone would get a single bite. They would still be hungry. Jesus, this is not possible. We don't have the resources to feed them. So one of his other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish. That's enough for the boy. But what are these with so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. 5,000 men, which means there's about 20,000 people here. And they are hungry. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. 
When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. These people are hungry, and obviously they're hungry for food. They need a meal, but also they're tired of being hungry. They're tired of being hungry all the time. Most of the people who followed Jesus were poor. And so if we think we think about food a lot, they thought about food all the time because it was hard just to get a meal day in and day out. And if there was a drought... Literally, some of them would starve. They would, they would die of hunger. And they're tired of that. They're tired of, of always being hungry and always having to worry about that next meal. They're tired of scarcity. They're tired of poverty. They're tired of hunger. And they know in their hearts that someday God will send one. They, they call him the one who's coming into the world. He's Messiah. And you know, when Messiah comes, they know that God has promised that there will be continual feasting. There won't be scarcity any longer. There won't be hunger. There won't be enemies that come in and they take their crops. They'll be safe. They'll be protected. They see Jesus' sign and they say, he's the one. Right? He's the one. And so they say to themselves, let's make him king. It doesn't matter if he wants to be king. He must be king because he's the one who can stop all of these hungers in our lives. Let's make him king. And Jesus says, mm, no. That's, that's not God's plan. And he instead withdraws to be with the Father, to get set again on God's plan, God's will for his life. He withdraws and he prays. But first he sends his disciples away. He sends the 12 off. He says, you go. You go on ahead of me to Capernaum. And so he puts them in boats. And they're very, both are very comfortable being in a boat. Uh, many of them had been fishermen their whole lives. They'd grown up right in that region. And so they cut off that northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, and they head toward Capernaum while Jesus begins to spend again a whole night in prayer, and he's praying. Sometime during the night, he's done praying, and storm whips up, which is very common in that region. There's a a gap in uh, these cliffs, and the wind just comes down through there and stirs up really violent storms quickly, and storm gets stirred up, and you know the the story. The disciples become afraid. They think they're going to die, and they're rowing harder and harder, and all of a sudden, their fears are exacerbated because they see a man walking on the water. I've never seen a man walking on the water before. Got to be a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's, it is I. So they let him come on the boat. And as soon as he steps on the boat, the boat's in Capernaum. Another miracle. And they're safe and they're sound. The next morning, the people wake up and they look around. They realize Jesus is gone. His disciples are gone. The disciples took the boat, but there wasn't another boat for Jesus. How did Jesus get there? And so they get in their boats and they travel across to Capernaum. They say, Jesus, how did you get, get here? When did you get here? We've been looking for you. And they want more of Jesus. They don't know exactly what they want, but they know they want more of Jesus. And here's the first principle of John chapter 6. The bread of life, Jesus, draws out our hunger. The bread of life, who is Jesus, draws out our hunger. Read with me chapter 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. 
Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and he said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see you and believe? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life, life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us that bread. That's the bread we want. That's the bread we want. So we, we all hunger. And we were designed to hunger. We were designed actually to hunger for things that we need. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to move from the physical into the spiritual but he starts with the physical because we need food, right? We need food. We need food day in and day out just to survive, just to live. But we also get other benefits from food, don't we? Get pleasure, right? Remember, remember your favorite meal you've ever had? I mean, really good, you know, that, that you, yeah, that, that's, that's comfort food. That's the, that's the meal I love. I remember last year uh, we went to Madden's. And uh, they brought us an appetizer. It was, it was steak. It was, and I'm not even really a big steak guy, but it was absolutely the best piece of a meat product that I've ever tasted in my life. I mean, literally, I mean, literally, it melted. Put it in my mouth. I'm like, oh, my gosh. It's like, oh, wow. May this never end, right? Fiesta en la boca. Let's go. Oh, this is, oh, it's wonderful. I go, I'm, I am celebrating. Right? And I want to relive that moment. Pleasure from food. Imagine if God had made us without taste buds. He could have. But you know, God made your body to enjoy pleasure. What if he'd made you with no sense of smell? God made you to enjoy smells and enjoy taste. What if the whole world was black and white? No, God made you so that you could see color. God made your body for pleasure, for enjoyment, because God wants to bless you with that. Food is one of those ways that we experience it. We also experience the fellowship of people we love through food, right? Not just sustenance, not just pleasure, but, but, but people. You want to get to know somebody? What do you Well, let's go out and share a meal. Come into our home, have a meal. Let's share a meal together. That has been the case for all of human history. Christmas and Thanksgiving, we love the meals. We, we anticipate the meals. We anticipate these foods. We only eat a couple times a year, and we know we're just going to eat and eat and eat and eat, right? And then the tryptophan will kick in and we'll pass out and we'll get up. We'll think, well, I couldn't eat anymore. Well, yes, I can, right? And we'll go, we'll eat again. We'll eat again. We'll eat leftovers and we love it. But as time goes on, we realize, you know, that the meals are wonderful. But what I really love about those holidays is the people. And we could eat anything. But when we, we gather together, right? I'm not even looking forward to the presence so much as it's the people. God designed us with needs. And he designed us to hunger after those needs. We're not self-sustaining organisms. We don't just walk through the world and from the atmosphere gather all the things that we need. I remember back in the 60s, some of you remember Simon and Garfunkel wrote a song, I'm a rock, I'm an island. Some of you remember that. Many of you don't. Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> Why wouldn't they rename their band, Right. That was their names. So that's why they named it Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock. I'm an island, which means I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. And let me tell you, a lot of people walk through life that way. 
But if that's your philosophy on life, I, I got to tell you, your island better produce food and water, and it better have at least a couple people on the island, or you're going to get weird. Because <laughs> you need people, and you were designed to hunger for those things that you need. The problem is this. We often mistake the objects of our hunger. Right? We're mistaken, not realizing that really beyond all these hungers is God. We really need God. One of my favorite uh, pieces of work by C.S. Lewis is called The Weight of Glory. Small book, and he's got essays in it. In the first essay, he wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are, in fact, far too easily pleased. So he's saying, he's saying, God doesn't think that we, we desire things too strongly. He thinks that we just desire foolish things. Things that aren't healthy for us, things that are not going to build us up. Sometimes I go to Kroger and I'm hungry. And I go grocery shopping when I'm hungry, which is the worst time to go grocery shopping, right? Because when you go when you're hungry, you buy too much food and you buy bad food. Right? You walk in the door and they always have a display case and it's never fruit. Right? It's, it's, look, seven bags of Doritos for the price of one. I need 14, right, for that price. And so, uh, okay, basket's full. I can't buy anything else. And you're so hungry that you open up a bag on the way home. Because your hunger is driving you. Your hunger is controlling you. Book of Proverbs, it says, for the hungry man, any food tastes good. So now hunger has taken over. And God wants to take our hunger and use it to direct us to him. I want you to hold your place here in John 6 and turn back with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Deuteronomy, remember, was written to uh, the second generation. Generation was rescued out of Egypt. God brought them into the wilderness. He wanted to bring them to the promised land, but when they got to the edge, uh, they were fearful. They pulled back. So God said, well, your generation won't go in. Instead, you're going to wander for 40 years. Your generation will die off, but your children, I'll bring them into the promised land. And Moses wrote uh, another copy, an expanded edition of the law. It's called Deuteronomy, the second law. And he delivers that to this generation of children who have now grown up in the wilderness their entire lives, and they're about to go into the promised land. Chapter 8, verse 3. said, God humbled you, and he let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Notice what Moses says there. He says, God intentionally let you be hungry. And then he fed you with something called manna. And you know what manna means in Hebrew? What? It means what? Literally, no, I'm serious. It means what? That's what manna means. It means what? What is it? What is this thing? Well, it says, God let you be hungry, and then he fed you with something that you didn't even, you'd never seen it before, you didn't know what it was. Why? So that you would recognize that what you really want and what you really need is not simply to have your bodies filled with food, but what you want to understand is man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What you really need, what you're really hungry for, is actually 
God. You are hungry for God. In fact, Moses will go on to say that when you lose that sense of hunger, you're in a very dangerous place. Chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, springs, flowing forth in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. And he goes on to warn him. He says, what's going to happen to you is you're going to eat and be satisfied. You won't feel hungry any longer. And you will forget that God is the source of everything in your life, physical and spiritual. And then you will drift away from God, forgetting God is the source And you will, in your own pride, you will think that your hands brought this forth, that your strength brought you into the land and conquered your enemies, that that you are the source of all things. And then you know what will happen? You will become fearful and insecure. And in fact, what drove idolatry in ancient Israel was a fear of scarcity. They were afraid that they would starve. Why? Because it was such a tenuous land. In fact, if the rains didn't come at exactly the right season and in exactly the right proportion... The crops wouldn't come up. They couldn't be harvested. They wouldn't have water to drink. They would starve. They would die of thirst. And so they began to worship all of the hosts of heaven, right? Began to worship the sun that would cause crops to grow and the rain that they needed. And they would worship gods and goddesses of fertility. Because they'd forgotten the source. And they'd forgotten that the physical world is, in a sense, an analogy for the spiritual world. And man doesn't live simply by bread alone, but he lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so what God does in our lives, in your life and in my life, is he lets you intentionally be hungry. He lets you long for things so that you will learn that what you're really longing for is actually God. Okay, so first principle, the bread of life draws out our hunger. Second, the bread of life satisfies us eternally. Turn again to John chapter 6 and read with me verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Uh, Just like in the wilderness, also here in John chapter 6 in Galilee, Jesus is moving from the physical to the spiritual, from the, the temporal and that which perishes to that which is eternal and imperishable. He's trying to draw an analogy for them to understand spiritual truths from temporal truths. Look back in chapter 6, verse 11. It says, Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. See what he says? Jesus begins to break the bread and he's distributing the fish. And he says, I want you to keep eating. Is everybody satisfied? No, you're still hungry? Well, there's more. There's more. There's more. There's more. And when they're done, there are actually leftovers. How many leftovers? Well, 12 baskets full. How many tribes of Israel? 12 tribes. He's saying, over and abundantly, I can meet absolutely all 
of your physical needs. And if I can meet all of your physical needs, I can meet all of your spiritual needs forever. Verse 30. So they said to Jesus, what do you do for a sign so that we may see you, see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. One of the things that John highlights in the ministry of Jesus is he makes a comparison between Jesus and Moses. Jesus is a better deliverer than Moses. In the exodus that gave them freedom out of slavery, Jesus provides a better exodus. And you can see that even on the people's mind right now, as they've, they've eaten this bread once and they say, well, show us another sign, right? Moses gave us signs. You give us a sign. If you're the, the prophet that Moses talked about, then you should produce signs. Let's see a sign. Let's see another sign. Let's see yet another sign. Moses gave us bread. Jesus said, well, I'm giving you better bread. Remember what happened when they gathered bread in the wilderness? Every day they had to gather bread. And they could only gather enough bread for the next day. If they gathered too much bread, what happened? In the morning it was rotten. Right? So you know it, that house stinks. Right? Those people stink. They don't trust God. Right? On the sixth day they would gather enough for two days, but it wouldn't rot. So they could rest on the Sabbath day God provided. But then they would eat. Right? They'd gather enough and they would eat. But then they'd be hungry and they'd have to eat another meal. And then the next day they'd have to gather again and eat. And then they ate for 40 years. They ate that bread and then they died. Because it wasn't a bread that could sustain them forever. And what Jesus says is this. I am the living bread that actually comes down from heaven. That was a physical analogy of the spiritual truth. You ate, but you ate and then you died. But the bread that I give you, you'll eat and you'll live forever. Chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and then they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You know, the most vivid picture of heaven is actually a banquet. Heaven's described as it's a party. It's a huge party. It's a party that just keeps going on and on. And there's, there's so much food, there's leftovers, right? Everybody eats till they're full, completely satisfied. And then there's more. The supply is abundant and the supply is good. The beautiful description of it in Isaiah chapter 25 says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. The best wine, the best meat, which they could not afford. In Jesus' day, best wine, best meat, best grains, best vegetables, best of foods. And you just eat and you eat and you eat till you are completely and utterly satisfied. That's the picture of heaven. It's repeated in Revelation chapter 19. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land. What was the biggest party that they could experience in their culture? A wedding party. God says, let me describe for you what heaven is like. It's like a wedding party. Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, he who sits on the throne will spread out his tabernacle over them and they will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore. They will eat and they will drink, but not driven by fear. 
driven by rejoicing. And so I just imagine heaven. I just imagine heaven. Madden's steak appetizer and no Brussels sprouts ever. For all of eternity. Forever. Satisfied by the bread of life. And here's the best news. Bread of life costs us nothing. When I first started seminary, uh, I met a, a friend and uh, he asked me if I wanted to go to dinner, which, you know, really was a big thing. I didn't have any money. So eating dinner out was, you know, a couple times a month maybe. So I said, sure, let's go, go grab some dinner. So uh, we went to uh, a burger place and we had burgers and fries. Check comes and he realizes I didn't bring my wallet. So, hey, no problem. You know, I guess I won't go out to eat again for a month. What, no, I'm, no, really, I'm, you know, we're in seminary. We're Christians, we're giving. I, I paid, no big deal. I paid, right? Well, he asked me to go to dinner again. Uh, okay. All right, so we're not, guess what? No wallet. Again, check comes, no wallet. So I paid again. Um, and he didn't pay me back other time. So, you know, third time he asked, hey, you want to go to dinner? It's a while later, you want to go to dinner? And I thought, man, I can't afford your invitations, right? Instead, I just said, do you have your wallet, right? In most cultures, if someone invites you to eat, they pay, right? Particularly if somebody invites you to their home, they don't invite you to their home and then they greet you at the door and say, did you bring your wallet, right? Did you bring your wallet? Because we actually made a really nice spread this time and we need you to chip in for the dinner we're about to serve you. No, that, that's not how it works. It's certainly not how it worked in the ancient Near East. The host paid for the meal. The guests had one obligation. You know what it was? Eat. Come and eat. Come and eat. Eat freely without cost. The eternal life provided by the bread of life costs us nothing. I want you to read with me chapter 6, again in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Notice the connection here. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. (laughs) When the Jews heard this, they began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and as I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread will live forever. What Jesus is saying is to eat is to believe. To eat is to believe. Verse 47, he who believes has eternal life. He who eats has eternal life. But they didn't get it, did they? Like, oh my gosh, what is this man talking about? He's crazy. And they misunderstood Jesus. Many actually walked away. They turned away, right? Because They're thinking cannibalism, and Jesus is talking symbolism. They're taking Jesus completely literally, but this is a metaphor. It's a metaphor of faith. 
It's a metaphor for faith. Think about it. When Jesus began this whole institution of celebrating the Lord's Supper, he started it like this. He took a piece of bread and he held it up in front of him and he said what? This is my body. This is my body. Did any of the disciples in that moment think, no, really that's, that, that's bread and bread is his body. Yeah, that, that bread must be his body. No, they understood it's a metaphor. Did they understand the meaning of the metaphor? No, they didn't. But they knew it was metaphor because Jesus' body was actually still with them, right? It was right in front of them. So when he held out bread, they didn't think the bread is actually literally the body of Jesus. They knew that it was a metaphor. In fact, Jesus loves metaphors. This whole series that we're studying, seven I am's, you know what they are? They're seven metaphors. Jesus will say, I am the door. Is Jesus a door? Jesus is not a door, right? Doors are doors, people are people, right? Jesus will say, I'm a vine. Is Jesus a vine? No, he's not a vine, right? He's not a vine. He's a person. Vines are vines. People are people. He'll say, you're branches. Are you branches? No, you're people. Okay? You're like a branch, and he's like a vine, and he's like a door, and he will say, I'm like bread. Okay? It's a metaphor, and what is it a metaphor of? It's a metaphor of faith. When you eat the bread, it's a symbol of believing in Jesus. You're taking Jesus into your life, to be life for you, to sustain life for you. Okay, this is even clearer if you look at John chapter 6 and verse 27. Jesus says, do not work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and he said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So what is the one work, men and women, that God requires of you? Believe, right? To have eternal life, what is the work of God? Jesus says, you you need to stop working for food that perishes. Instead, work for food that endures to eternal life. And what is that work through which you receive eternal life? He says, it's just believe, believe. So what does it mean to believe? A very, very simple concept, but somehow it's, it's just really difficult for us to grasp. In, in John's theology, there's a sense in which faith is both passive and active. It's passive in this sense. Jesus is the host. He spreads the meal. And what do we do? We come and eat, right? Jesus says, I'm drawing all men to myself. If I be lifted up, the Father is drawing people to himself. The Spirit we're going to send, he will draw people to himself. In other words, faith is becoming convinced. Letting the Spirit convince you that this is true. When we tell our kids, it's time to eat, what's required of them? Well, come eat. We don't say, did you bring your wallet? We say, just just come eat. No, bring your wallet. Bring your wallet. Which food in the refrigerator did you pay for? Well, you can eat that food. Which food in the pantry did you pay for? You can eat that food. No, we just say, the meal has been spread. Come and eat. Okay. It's passive in that sense. It's also active. One of the synonyms that's used for faith here is to come. Just come. Right? We, we, again, we spread the meal before our kids. We say, uh, come to the table. All you have to do is eat, but they do have to come to the table, right? Only food in the kitchen is one of dad's rules. That means you've got to come. There's only one place you can come to eat. It's the kitchen, but you have to come, right? You have to come. You are convinced, and then you come. As John will say, beginning of his book, 
his gospel, he'll say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. They're convinced, and they say to God, I believe. They reach out and they receive. Or as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, defining faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Jesus' followers say to him, show us a sign. And you see the irony, I hope. They've just seen a sign. They've seen lots of signs. They've seen people healed. And they just participated in a meal in which 20,000 people were fed from five barley loaves and two fish. And then they show up to Jesus and they say again, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. Jesus doesn't give them another sign. Why? Because they don't need another sign. They need to believe. The same thing that happened to the Exodus generation In the wilderness, God showed them signs through Moses. Moses even said, God, I'm going to need some signs to convince these people. He said, well, you've got a staff, throw it down. And when you throw it down, it'll become a snake. And you pick it up, it'll become a staff again. Or put your hand inside your robe, it'll become leprous. Put it in again, it won't be. And then go to Pharaoh and do a lot of signs. Frogs and gnats and blood in the water. And Israel will see it and Egypt will see it. And then as you depart and you're facing the Red Sea... Moses, all I need you to do is just part the waters. (laughs) Lift up your hands. They saw the waters parted. They walked through on dry ground. Egypt was destroyed. They went into the wilderness. They were thirsty. Moses asked God for water, and he went tap, tap on a rock. They had water. They had bread. They had meat. They had quail. They had protection from their enemies. They had everything that they needed. And yet, they grumbled, and they moaned, and they whined constantly. In fact, when they had just left and seen all the signs, they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses went up. He said, I'll be right back. God wants to enter into a covenant with you. And they said, all that the Lord has commanded us, we will do. Moses is up there for a few days and they say, I think we need a new God. Aaron, could you make us a God? Sure, just bring me your gold and silver and jewels and we'll we'll whip something up. There's There's the calf. There's the God. Right? And they're standing at the foot of the glory of God, crashing down upon the mountain, and they're worshiping another God. And I hear that story, and I think to myself, you know, I wouldn't have done that. If I could see the glory of God, in fact, I probably would never sin again. Right? I'd be sinless from that point on if I could just see a sign. But you know what? Signs don't convince the heart to believe. Faith is a matter of the heart. It's allowing supernaturally, miraculously, The Spirit to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins. And you're convinced. And so you reach out in faith and you say, God, thank you. Yes. And that's the only cost to you. Sometimes the phrase is thrown around, cheap grace. Grace is not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. The grace of God is the favor of God bestowed on you that you don't deserve and God gives it to you freely. Nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to lose it. But it cost Jesus his life. It cost him suffering. cost him a painful death. It actually cost him separation somehow from his father. A fracturing in the Trinity where he looks up. Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Infinite cost to Jesus. Not cheap, but free. Because when the host invites you to enjoy a meal, he pays for everything. He pays for everything. And all that you are responsible to do is to come and eat. That's the beauty of the gospel. And then fourth, the bread of life, Jesus, changes us forever. Read with me again, John chapter 6, and now in verse 37. Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, they will come to me. 
And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up again on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will, I myself, will in fact raise him up on the last day. In other words, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are eternally forever secure. Okay? Remember the Old Testament system? Year after year, the high priest had to go in with the offering of the, the blood of a bull. And he would take that blood of the bull and he would smear it over what's uh, translated as the mercy seat. It's the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, he had to take that blood and cover over the lid. It's called the kafar. It means covering. It's the covering. We translate it often as atonement. But atonement simply means, it means covering. So he would cover it over. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three objects. There was Aaron's rod, which budded at the rebellion. Remember, the other leaders put their staffs down. Aaron's rod, it was the only one that budded. And then there's a copy of the law itself. And then there was a jar of manna. Okay, all three of these things represented the rebellion of God's people against him. So God looks down every year, and what does he see? Well, he's, he's reminded of their rebellious spirit. He's reminded of the laws that they've broken. Mosaic law. Uh, he's reminded that he gave them all the bread that they could need or want, and yet they still complained. Right? And year after year, they kept that same behavior. So God looks down, he sees their sin, but then the high priest comes in once a year, and he takes the blood, and he covers over the lid, the covering. And so now God looks down from his throne, right? The, the lid represents the throne of God. He's sitting on the throne, he's looking down, and what does he see? He doesn't see the rebellion any longer. He sees blood in its place, And so his wrath and anger against sin is averted because he sees blood, a sacrifice for sin instead of the sin itself. The problem is the blood dries out and it flakes off and God begins to see the sin again. And so the high priest has to come in again and he has to spread over the blood so God can pass over the sin. But the sin has not been removed. The debt has not been removed. It's just accumulating. So when Jesus came, he brought his own blood into the very presence of God and his blood didn't just cover over, but it removed the debt of sin fully and finally, completely. So that when God looks down on our sin, he doesn't see our sin any longer. Instead, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ, which is eternally adequate to remove the debt of our sin. As it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 25, therefore he, that is Jesus, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? Jesus is, is always alive, always making intercession. So when our adversary, the devil, comes into the presence of God and he says, sin, 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 Chip, sin, Debbie, they, they sin. Jesus steps in between the devil and the father, so to speak, and says, no, that debt has been paid for with my blood. And I'm eternally live, alive, and so I will e- eternally intercede on their behalf. They cannot be punished for their sins because I took the punishment on myself. The bread of life makes you eternally secure. The bread of life makes you presently fulfilled. Read with me John chapter 6, verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and they are life. What this means is, you and I don't have to keep running from meal to meal to meal to meal. 
Now, we're hungry for many things, aren't we? Not just, not just food, but we're, we're hungry for approval. We're hungry for uh, things, for stuff, for status, for wealth. What Jesus says is all of these things perish. He's not saying they're bad, but they perish. Because they perish, they will never fill you up. But the words that I've spoken to you, their spirit, their life, you can be filled completely forever. You don't have to keep chasing because you can find life in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you won't hunger and long for things in this life. You will. But what you'll discover is Jesus alone can satisfy. And so how do we apply this? Uh, If I could ask the servers to go to the back and get us prepared for communion, let me give you three points of application. The first is this, believe. If you say to yourself, oh man, I want to, I'm trying to, it's just, it's too hard. Let me encourage you this week to intentionally give God's spirit opportunity to persuade you. I encourage you to study the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let God's spirit persuade you that it's true, that God really did send his son Jesus to die for your sins, to give you eternal life. If you haven't believed yet this morning, let me encourage you, today could be that day for you. Just reach out to God and say, God, thank you. I thank you that you you gave your son Jesus. I believe. And if you're not persuaded yet, let God's spirit persuade you. Second, uh, share. If you've been given the bread of eternal life, well then, in a sense, break the bread and pass it out. And don't don't keep it to yourself. A lot of followers stopped following Jesus because they just really couldn't understand it. It was just beyond them. And then Jesus came to his disciples and said, well, do you want to leave too? And their response where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. They, they understood and they believed and God transformed them and then they spent their lives passing out bread. Every person that you meet is hungry. Every person that you meet is hungry. They're hungry for God. They may not know they're hungry for God. In fact, their hunger may cause them to pursue things that are actually kind of destructive for them. But what they're really hungry for is God and you can point them to the true object of that hunger point them to Jesus. So don't keep the bread to yourself. Third, celebrate. Again, sometimes we call it communion. Sometimes we call it Lord's Supper. It's also called uh, Eucharist, which is a Greek word that means Thanksgiving. Right? So every meal that they took together as Christians was Thanksgiving. They had that holiday over and over and over again. Thanksgiving. And every time they broke the bread and they drank the cup, they gave thanks that Jesus had given them life and gave them life that lasts forever. So uh, as the men come forward in service, let's just take a few moments quietly and give God thanks for Jesus. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you. For the privilege of celebrating. Thank you 
for the banquet. What a joy it is to partake and to remember all that which you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.